New York uh, to study more about why these terrorism happen and mm -hmm. these inequalities that's happening in the world. And that really got me interested in how then, how can, what, what can we do about this? You know, what are the things that I can do in order to influence the current negative spiral of hatred and violence? This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, who's a great colleague of mine for, for many years now. Takashi, please go ahead. Thank you. This is Takashi speaking from Kobe, Japan. Um, a little bit about myself. I've been working with Church War Service for quite a long time. I started out in Afghanistan back in 2004. Um, then worked in Pakistan, the Cyclone Nargis response in Myanmar, um, the massive flood response in Thailand, and the East Japan earthquake and tsunami in, in Japan in 2011. So I, I think all these disasters are, uh, have taken me from place to place. Um, and now after that the triple disaster in Japan, we have CW Japan, which I lead currently. Let me take you a couple of steps back. How did you get involved with this work? You know, because you, you said, uh, yes, you, you know, I know you from your work with, with CWS Pakistan, Afghanistan, but tell a little bit about, you know, where did you grow up? You, you were, you're saying you're based so, in Kobe. Were you born there yeah. as well? And, you know, what did you study? Well, from my childhood, my um, family uh, have moved quite a lot. I think by my university time, I've moved maybe 13, 14 times, which includes my childhood wow. days in Luxembourg, hmm. which uh, where I lived for about five years uh, with the family. Um, and then after that, I lived in Ohio's uh, hmm. state in the US wow. um, and went back to Japan in my high school uh, days. So what were your parents and, doing? Well, my, my father aunt. was working uh, for this company called Tejin, and they had this joint uh, uh, business in Luxembourg and Ohio mm. with DuPont. And I think it was like, it was a factory making these films, like mm. those black films in their mm -hmm. cassette tapes and videotapes. Um, and he was a finance guy. So, so uh, he helped set up that operation in mm. Luxembourg and Ohio. Uh, so that's, that's what took us there. Okay. And, and and may I ask? So, what did that life abroad do to you? Yeah. Oh, many things. Yeah, <laughs> many things. So, well, first of all, I think it opened up uh, like my eyes to mm -hmm. many things, including um, in Luxembourg. I went to uh, American school or in Luxembourg, and in one of the buildings of that campus. Uh, suddenly we, we had lots of uh, uh, refugees from Yugoslavia at that time because of the conflict that mm. they had. And so we saw so many people that we haven't seen before. And there was really a desperation in their eyes. But as a, as a child, I couldn't really understand, you know, what was going on and what's behind uh, these people moving into one of the buildings in our campus. Mm. But that was my exposure to... Uh, to these uh, like the human miseries that the people are going through. Um, and that kind of stuck in my heart um, while I was growing up. And the key moment that took me to this sector was actually um, 2001, 9-11. And I was, I was uh, doing this exchange program. I was in a university in Japan 
but there was an exchange program with the universities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I was in the University of California in Santa Barbara okay. on that day. And, uh, and 9-11 happened and, and everyone started to call me from Japan asking if I was okay. And they didn't understand whether I was in the East Coast or West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was studying international relations at that time. And the curriculum in UCSB changed completely uh, given that um, terrorist attack in New York uh, to study more about why these terrorism happen and mm-hmm. these inequalities that's happening in the world. And that really got me interested in how then, how can, what, what can we do about this? You know, what are the things that I can do in order to influence the current negative spiral of hatred and violence? And working with NGO or for NGO uh, with the people on the ground was one of the things I wanted to do. So after I went back to Japan, I started doing this internship uh, with with the one NGO in Japan, which had a partnership with Church War Service Operation in Afghanistan. Okay. They were financing the uh, mm-hmm. the education program in Hazarajat at that time. So that's what got me connected to CWS, actually. Great, great. Um, okay, I didn't know that. So, so thanks, thanks for sharing that, Hiroshi. Uh, I'm especially passionate about ensuring that that people are better prepared. Uh, that as a world, we, uh, you know, are, are more resilient. So, so share about about that work. Since when I was in Afghanistan and Pakistan, I was in the in this team of disaster response, um, and we've been responding to various disasters at that time: recurrent floods, drought, um, earthquakes, and particularly when it comes to these climate-induced recurrent disasters like floods, um, we were like, we were facing with similar types of damage, similar types of losses uh, by similar, uh, you know, or the same communities uh, every year or once every two, three years. And then that got us thinking, how can we try to minimize loss from before disaster time? Um, and, and that was our sort of entry into disaster risk reduction. Um, I think it's maybe, uh, um, maybe two decades ago or something like that, mm-hmm. um, or close to two decades ago. And the reason why we're so passionate about disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation is because, you know, during disasters, we lose important things. Mm. Um, our jobs, for example, or sometimes our family, friends, you know, um, important belongings, uh, our assets, uh, all these important things um, can be lost. But there, there is a science around these disasters that we say, you know, sometimes hazards, are just hazards. You know, they are these vulnerabilities and exposure element that makes these hazards into disasters. So we have to make sure that the hazards don't become disasters for the people. We have to make sure that you can protect your loved ones. You know, you protect yourself, protect your jobs, livelihood, the future, you know, dreams. And one way of doing that for me is ensuring this disaster risk reduction, making sure that people understand the science of why hazards become disasters. And you know, there's an inherent capacity in all of us to protect ourselves and build upon that inherent capacity in each one of us uh, to make sure that we're safe. And I think that can be done. And, and uh, that makes me passionate about this disaster risk reduction. Mm. Before I'm going to ask you, you know, about what you are doing and what you have been doing in Japan, I would like to to tell you to tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what you learned in Pakistan and Afghanistan, because, you know, there you had to work in difficult circumstances in another culture, 
Um, what is, you know, maybe one of the most important lessons that uh, that you learned of that, you know, that particular period of working there? Well, first of all, um, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan are, you know, among my favorite countries in the world. I didn't really think of my uh, time there as a hardship. Rather, it was a it was a moment that I really cherish. You know, mm-hmm. full of learning. And one one of the biggest learning that I had in my work there was, you know, I sometimes compare my life in Japan as like a color picture. Mm-hmm. And the life I saw in Afghanistan was like a black and white picture and like a mono monocolor picture. But I mean, I'm not saying that in a negative sense because many professional photographers, they, they prefer to take these uh, uh, monocolored mm-hmm. uh, pictures, right? In order to emphasize on the message. Yeah. And what I learned in, in working in Afghanistan and Pakistan was that essence in life, what's most important in life, mm-hmm. um, and how how that you know I often got so caught up in unnecessary things mm-hmm. um, and not really focusing myself enough on what's most important in life, and you know they taught me the importance of, for example, community. You know, we say community, but community encompasses many things for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the love, the relationship, the security, protection, um, and that mutual support, mm-hmm. which we often need. But in our urban living style these days, I think we often forget that, the mm-hmm. importance of community. But uh, my experience there really taught me emphasized mm. um, how important that is and and I still have that as my core uh, sort of belief and value uh, when carrying out my work okay and you know so you learned a lot in Afghanistan and Pakistan and and um, uh, then suddenly something in your own country happened and you know take us through that uh, journey and then you know what you started to do because that's pretty yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty great because you know lessons that you took from Pakistan, Afghanistan, you took from Japan, you know there, uh, yeah, you were involved in many different types of organizations and responses, and now you're using that also to help CWS not only within the region but beyond that as well. So, um, okay, bring us to mm. back to the Japan after Pakistan. <laughs> so on that day, March eleventh, uh, two thousand eleven, I was actually. You know, at that time, I was based in Bangkok in our CWS regional office, um, looking after the emergency program in Asian Mm -hmm. region. And I was on my way from Bangkok to Afghanistan uh, on March 11th. And that's that's when I I was packing and I was about to head out to the airport. And I received a call um, from my (laughs) wife-to-be, the current wife that a massive earthquake has happened. Mm. And then when I went to the airport, I saw these, uh, these images of tsunami uh, being broadcasted on every TV screen in, in the Svanabum airport in Bangkok. And, mm. and I was flying to the west, to Afghanistan, but I really wanted to fly to the east. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, as the situation got revealed, um, it was clear that the Japan uh, given all the capacity that Japan has, it was impossible for only Japan to respond to the, the uh, humanitarian needs that happened, that, that emerged. So um, I, I think I spent in Kabul for about two days and then I flew back to Japan um, and started uh, the emergency operation with you know, CWS and our partners in Japan which eventually then we established our CWS uh, office in in Japan. One big learning from this response in Japan was that I was a local. You know, it was really a realization at that time. I thought I was a professional aid worker until Mm -hmm. then, but I realized that I was not. Mm -hmm. What I mean is I was always an expat, a foreigner. 
you know, yeah. responding to emergencies in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Myanmar or Thailand. But then, and when you're a foreigner, not really speaking the local language, then there's there's sort of a, a wall between yourself and people affected community, right? You're only able to understand what's being translated to you. And there's always that sort of sort of distance between yourself um, and the local community. But when you when I'm when I'm a local, I could go wherever I wanted to, I could speak with whoever I wanted to, I could understand when even people are moaning or crying. I understand that. So until my Japan response, I thought having that sort of artificial wall between myself and the people affected communities was, was prerequisite to be a professional in our work. Mm. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. But I realized that I was completely wrong um, in Japan. No. Mm. What I mean is, um, so you could understand everything that people are, people are saying, what people are going through, and you receive those uh, in a way. You have this empathy that you make yourself closer to those people. And I realized, you know, if you continue to do that, then it really affects you psychologically mm. because um, all these miseries, you know, hardship that people are going through will really affect your, your feelings mm. as well. And it could affect your, you know, psychology, your body. Um, so you, you need to, if you, but having that empathy, I thought, was prerequisite. You know, not having that artificial wall was prerequisite to be a professional aid worker, but having that empathy, which makes yourself closer to the to people who are being affected, was the prerequisite. But if we're going to do that, we have to learn how to manage that accumulating sort of stress levels. Mm. Um, you know, and I and I thought that's the professionalism in what we do. It's not that you distance yourself from the affected community but you mm. go through it together mm. but then you have to make sure that you're resilient enough mm. um, to to be able to have that empathy so you know that that particular realization does that mean that you know if you would go back now to pakistan you would work differently absolutely mm. absolutely yeah at that time when i was based there well i was uh i was a young <laughs> aid worker i think mm-hmm. you know I, I was really a kid um i was learning a lot but if i were to do it again uh, in my um you know work that i used to do in pakistan afghanistan then i would put a, a lot more emphasis on you know, going through this process uh, together, process of transformation of facing these uh, issues that the local communities are facing and until having these solutions for these problems, mm-hmm. you know, go through this each of the process together more uh, with that community and, and uh, identify these local leaders and have them lead the process. Mm-hmm. And we become sort of a support role Mm. Uh, for that leadership, local leadership to flourish, you know. Uh, so instead of just um, like distribution-oriented aid work, but it's more about nurturing that local leadership aid work. I think through my tenure in CWS, I've matured in that way. That ultimately is that local leadership that will that will uh, uh, make a difference locally mm-hmm. and supporting that capacity on the ground is the best thing that the outside agencies like CWS can do. And so I think, um, and have, you know, lots of empathy, the attitude of empathy during that process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what I would do if I go back now. Hmm. Okay. Takashi, I mean, you, you hear a lot about, um, you know, after a disaster, we need to ensure that we build back better. Um, and I think inherent within that is, you know, you you need to ensure that it doesn't happen again. So, you know, you need to build houses, earthquake resistance. You need to ensure that flooding is not happening, you know. And then it, I think ultimately it goes to 
looking at climate change and you know what we do to the world right how we are making this world more sustainable um can you explain to us what uh take us let's say not in the actual response after uh the tsunami in in japan but more like okay where you were working about already on at the future instead of the direct response um how did you do that because i think that's where your passion and that's where your work uh, around uh, dr comes up and and um you know not only in japan but you're trying to to strengthen it also you know within other organizations around the globe um yeah. so yeah well for example um the international framework for disaster risk reduction that that we have now is called sendai framework for the disaster risk reduction which was uh, adopted in sendai in 2015 in japan and there are four priorities of action and the first priority for action is understanding the risks which i think is so important because um depending on where i live depending on uh what sort of uh, uh difficulties my family members have in in you know daily lives maybe difficulty walking a difficulty in seeing hearing um and um you know my neighborhood uh sort of landscape um all these variables actually determine what kind of disaster risk i have um so disaster risk is not only about these physical like you know you you live in the landslide prone area uh you live in the flood inundation risk area it's not only the physical element but um the variables that you have in your family uh, yourself you know if you're taking these medicines that uh, require you to take every day that means that uh, you know um if if that stock runs out then there is that vulnerability that you could face so different people would have different risks and i think covid has has revealed that even more because you know some people do not show the symptoms but some people have really severe symptoms and we have a lot of people uh who passed away from from that uh disaster like global pandemic and so understanding one's disaster risk i think is the first step towards um any um, disaster risk reduction disaster risk management work and when you're faced with these hazard even a flood um or you know the sediment disasters like uh, um you know landslide um or these uh, uh the corruption um uh, collapse uh of these uh uh surface uh, on the slope it would happen again you know it's not only a one time hazard hazards always recur um whether it happens in every 10 years 20 years or 40 years 50 years sometimes we have these uh floods that are happening every year you know um and drought and and so on so I think understanding one's risk is is critical in trying to secure your assets, your life, uh, you know, your loved ones, uh, community in this continuous risk that we have to live with. And this planet actually is breathing. This planet is moving. you know the plates are moving the air is moving uh, our mother earth is living actually you know um and disaster risk reduction is is a method for us to live wisely coexist you know wisely with this uh, planet's um natural circulation of course uh, with the uh climate change that the humans are causing i think uh, many of this is not really a natural and it's human made um but i think that disaster risk reduction is really how to coexist with this planet i would like to 
talk with you about then, you know, COVID-19, I mean, which you mentioned. Um, how, how did your country, Japan, uh, respond to that? Um, and what, and were you able, were you also part of the, of the response? Japan has gone through, we are, we're just at the end of uh, our fifth wave. So we've gone through this five waves of uh, uh, COVID, you know, pandemic, and uh, we're fearing whether a sixth wave will happen this winter again or not. But these days what's happening with, uh, because of uh, the rate of vaccination has gone up, um, many people in Japan are now vaccinated against COVID. And I think there is a little change in lifestyle as well. You know, uh, many people are, not all, but many people are uh, having these remote work style, including CWS actually. Um, so it's like a hybrid model from now of, you know, visiting office uh, once in a while, but, you know, working from home uh, the other times. Um, and we've realized that the, there are vulnerable people um, against COVID and uh, there are less vulnerable people. And to support those vulnerable people has been, you know, the focus of uh, the aid, aid agencies in Japan as well, including the elderlies, uh, you know. And for example, CWS Japan has been also supporting uh, our partners, uh, in Japan, but also uh, have been doing this COVID response in Afghanistan, for example, also. How did you do that with Afghanistan? Because there is a lot going on um, in that country as well, so. Well, there's a lot going on, but, you know, CWS has a, a partner there, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the former Church World Service Pakistan Afghanistan mm -hmm. offices, yeah. Community World Service Asia. Um, and CWS Japan has been working with Community World Service Asia for these emergency uh, and disaster risk reduction work, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And so um, through that partnership, our assistance become possible, even in the current chaotic uh, situation, mm. which actually requires uh, all hands on deck because yeah. the winter is approaching for them mm -hmm. and the situation is so dire that you know I hear about these mothers for example selling their children for the price of 300 to 400 dollars you know because she has to feed other children and there are people committing suicide because they can't stand the fact that they cannot feed their family anymore they can't see there are family dying in front of them. It's, it's just too much. And traditionally in Afghanistan, uh, people would have these reserves, right? reserves of either uh, some cash, uh, food, you know, agricultural proceeds um, to prepare for this winter. This year, they have nothing. Many of the people in the government sector are also not receiving salaries since July. And if winter approaches, with given the condition like this, we're going to see really a, a catastrophe. And we would like to avoid that as soon as possible. So we're also mobilizing our stakeholders in Japan um, and uh, trying to do immediate uh, cash assistance uh, to, for people to go through this uh, harsh winter that uh, they're about to face, you know. So, but how so, do you how do you um, get that done? Because you know, I I, I guess um, I, I think people think that you know because of the change uh, the changes that are happening. I mean, we are all aware we are seeing that uh, the U.S. and other countries are trying to fly out uh, people, um, but we are also, of course, aware that the majority of the people that will remain in Afghanistan. Uh, under another regime. So how do you get this done? I mean, is, is, is the, the, the banking system is still working? Um, yeah. There Can are lots of restrictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are lots of restrictions like the bank, as you mentioned. Um, there's a limitation to how much we, you can withdraw, for example, cash. Uh, 
individuals, you can only withdraw the maximum of $200. Uh, some provinces becoming $150 per week. And organizations can only withdraw 5% of your uh, deposits mm -hmm. every week. And, um, and then I think there's a $5,000 cap of how much you can withdraw per week. However, there are mechanisms like, um, you know, there are these uh, like a mobile cash payments that you have in the US, we have in Japan, yeah. we have everywhere these days. That kind of services are also available in Afghanistan. And that industry would allow uh, aid agencies like us to do uh, cash transfer to the intended beneficiary uh, or people that we're working with, um, with a minimum sort of uh, uh, administrative cost. And if we use that kind of mechanism, um, the cash assistance to those in need are possible. And the, you know, if the assistance go through aid agencies with our partners, then the, the money doesn't really go to the government, but it goes to the people. And I think that's what's required for the world to do now. There's lots of political discussion, political consideration, but the Afghans, who are staying in Afghanistan, they are the victims of all these changes, you know, and they need to be supported. And we have the means to support them um, directly. And I think we should do more. Takashi, you know, you know that this this uh, podcast is a spin-off of my uh, 100 mile walk that I've been doing for the last uh, 10 years. Well, actually, while we speak, you know, to, that means tomorrow I will start my 100 mile, but this this particular pro, uh, podcast will be broadcasted. If everything goes well on, on the Wednesday, so then I'm three days in. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, so I, I walk uh, 100 miles. 15 to 20 miles per day to raise awareness about hunger, poverty, and injustice. If you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, um, you know, why would you do that? Well, um, I think one is, I think it will be a good exercise, right? I think it will make you fit. Mm -hmm. But also, I think having that global solidarity, um, mm -hmm. people who are walking in the US, other people who are walking in Asia, mm -hmm. um, having the same cause and doing the joint sort of action together, um, I think it's a beautiful thing. At the end of the day, you know, maybe you happen to be born in uh, country A, then you're, you know, so-and-so, uh, the citizens of that country. I'm born in Japan, so I'm Japanese. That's something that we don't choose, right? We don't choose mm. which country we, we are born, we don't where we come from. But what's the value that we are going to have and demonstrate in our life? It's something that we choose. Mm -hmm. So if we choose to connect, I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, I, I, I know you a little bit. I also know that you, at least you used to, I don't know how that is now. You you only need a little bit of sleep because it's, you know, you go until late and you wake up early. Um, but, you know, when you wake up, you know, in the morning, why do you get out of bed? You know, what, what drives you in life? What I get impressed the most or satisfies the most is is when I see, feel, experience the sort of the inherent love that we have uh, as a humanity. And I think it's mm. actually all around. We can see it in our work as well mm. uh, with the communities, with our partners. Um, and again, that's the choice we make, right? We, we, ha we have the choice, we have the freedom to make the choice of whether to express that feeling towards the people that you work with um, or not. And I choose to, to express that as much as I can because I think that's the most beautiful thing in life. 
And if I think like that, then every day is, is a beautiful beginning of, uh, you know, of such relationship. Mm. Um, and, you know, by the way, since about like three years ago, I started to do this meditation every morning. And, and, and it's, it's great because it's sort of the reflection of my uh, own state. Um, we often think about a lot of things, right? We think about what happened in the past. We think about what's going to happen in the future. But then I realized a lot of times I forget what's happening now. You know, my state of the body now, my state of the mind now, which is actually the only factual thing that we can feel, right? Um, and, and the factual thing that that's actually going on right now. So through my meditation, I, I learned how to focus on the current, the now, you know, what's happening now. And, and um, it's really working well for me. It's interesting, uh, Takashi, because you know when I walk um, with with other people, because I sometimes joined by folks that that would walk the whole day with me or a couple of miles. We often talk about this, actually, which I would consider, you know, spirituality. You know, why why are we on Earth? You know, what's the purpose? Um, and then we talk about religion as well, and which maybe for some people is more the institutionalized form of spirituality. For others, not, but. Um, what I'm interested in, and I try to discuss this with my guest, is what do you see within your community happening uh, with young people and religion and spirituality? Is that different, you know, uh, to, you know, what you did when you were younger? Uh, what, what do you see? Can you share? Sure. The community in, in Japan, I think majority of the people are not so practicing like like religion practicing people it's funny um in japan for example uh in the new years you go to a shrine when it comes to these funerals uh, you have your graveyard in a temple you know when it comes to wedding you do it in the church you know so i think people have these mm -hmm. um sort of acceptance in a way uh, towards different religion. And I was, I, I grew up in that kind of environment. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm sort of like that in a way that I respect all the religion that people believe. I think there's a, there's an inherent value in what people believe. And that itself, I think is beautiful. And, and we need to respect what people believe. But a community like this needs to be built on um, like a strong philosophy, right? Japan traditionally, I think, has been exercising that strong philosophy in life. You know, we're, we're taught how to behave in a society by our parents, by our neighbors, um, in schools and so on. But these days, I feel like young people are looking up to the current uh, adults who are making decisions in this society and are not feeling that philosophy being exercised. I think there's sometimes a disappointment that I feel from young people. All the, we're hurting the climate, for example, the planet. Um, mm -hmm. And there are probably more that we can do, but the immediate things um, come as a priority rather than you know, what's going to happen 50 years or 100 years later. And, you know, young people are starting to see that in the, in the adults. And I think they get disappointed. And that's what makes me sad because, you know, I think our generation should not disappoint our children's generation. Rather, I want my, you know, my son is six year old, by the way. Uh, I want his, uh, his generation to think that we're doing our level best so that they can have you know, a good life forward. And, and what do you see then 
the younger generation doing with that disappointment? Uh, are they taking actions themselves in, in Japan? Because that's what I often heard, uh, Takashi, when, when we say here is, you know, the younger generation, uh, when talking about religion and spirituality, and, and but especially maybe with institutionalized religion, um, disappointment is is in is in church and in church bodies because of you know many many things uh, reasons are there um, but then you see that the younger generation is very uh, active or a lot of uh, young people are active around climate change uh, injustices and and speaking out uh, taking actions starting their own NGOs um, is that similar in Japan or 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 not. I think traditionally, um, I don't think Japanese society has been very vocal about the things that we feel. Um, there was an era that the people went out to demonstrate and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of them becoming violent and all that. But um, I think these days, that's not how, how things are done. But I think there are different ways of engagement, like, um, like disengagement is also one way of, one form of engagement, right? Mm -hmm. So if young people lose trust in the current system, then maybe they may decide not to vote in the coming election because they don't want mm -hmm. to support the system that's really you know, hurting our planet uh, if they don't have this trust in the system that, uh, that we operate with. Maybe they would, they would reconsider about uh, uh, you know, paying these taxes and be a responsible citizen. Um, so I think that's an extreme form. This engagement is extreme form, but I think like our generation, generations before us um, need to think really about how to be more attractive as leaders in the society so that the young people would want to engage, not that they have to engage, but they feel they're so motivated to engage, provide that space uh, so that they can flourish with their leadership. I, I want to to well it's it's it has to do also with the younger generation but it also has to do with our organization church world service you know we celebrate 75 years uh, of existence um and you know the organization is looking at did we do well what did we do well and what not you know what should we do better a big uh, discussion is around uh, racial justice issues diversity inclusion if you like look at the ngo sector as a whole so not only at CWS, but the NGO sector as a whole. Yeah, what do you think? Did the NGO sector, did how did they do? I see. Okay. I think uh, these racial injustice is, is in many places, including where I live, you know, in Asia, um, particularly when it comes to like ethnic minority issues, whether we see like a multi-ethnic country like Afghanistan or Myanmar, uh, or sometimes in the Philippines, um, you know, there are majority, there are minority uh, in, in many countries. And what's happening with this uh, minority community uh, that they're not able to um, receive the same entitlement as the others, um, it's not really being shown if the majority doesn't care about it right and there's that wall of sort of like autonomy um, uh, of a nation that is difficult for international community to step in into such matters um, and during that time i think it's the ngos who can document who can speak up you know who can really let the society know what's happening around these issues um, and I'm not talking about the Western NGOs only. I'm talking about the local NGOs as well. And mm. The civil society as a whole, I think, should play that role more and more. And we need to support the local civil society in doing that. Because oftentimes in such country, in such community or society, these people who are speaking up against these issues are 
facing difficulties, right? They face, sometimes facing security threats. Sometimes they are, they feel alone. But I think the civil society is not only dictated by the country's boundary, but we have this global solidarity within the civil society for justice. And that needs to be apparent in action. And I think CWS is a, a kind of organization who try to be vocal and proactive on the justice issues as well. Right, yeah. Although, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, we have a lot of conversations going on and uh, I, I, I do agree with you. There are certain things that we did do well. There are other things that we still have a long way to go. Um, it's also very complex uh, as well, but, but you know, th thanks for sharing, uh, Kashi. I'm going to jump, you know, to another topic because, you know, music is very important to me and I always, you know, it makes me happy, you know, it helps me when I'm sad. Um, if I ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that embodies for a big part who you are, you know, what song or, or piece of music would you then mention? Imagine. Hmm. It may be a cliche in a questions like this, but. Uh... Uh, the lyrics in that song, Imagine by John Lennon, I think it really captures how I want this world to be. Mm -hmm. I think we're divided uh, in many instances by our differences. But if we just stop and try to think about it, we have more commonalities than differences as a human being uh, with people around the world. And we don't really take time to cherish that. I think it's a beautiful thing that we have commonality with so many people. And um, yeah, and you know what we imagine today, I think will influence our action um, tomorrow. And ultimately what we're imagining is what we're going to achieve. So if we don't imagine the, you know, what we want, how we want to be, um, I don't think we will ever reach there. And so, yeah, you know, lyrics in this song is really encompassing uh, what I believe. And, and just for the, you know, the, I don't know if you are aware, but I've been asking not to all 60 um, guests that I have so far, so far, but many. And I, I, I've made a, a Spotify uh, a playlist, actually, of all those songs that my guests have mentioned. And so you have classical music, you have hard rock, heavy metal, R&B, you know, Beatles. It's, it's really interesting. And, and so I, I would really, uh, you know, encourage you to check that out. And it's, it's, it's just... Yeah, it's fascinating that that uh, the songs people come up with. Hashtag walk, talk, listen, and you'll find it on Spotify. Hey, those conversations always go, you know, far too too fast. But uh, so I, I've come to the last question, um, and that is, you know, any message, invitation, question uh, that you might have for the listeners. I think. Um... And this is a message to everyone, but I think we're living in this era with such a increase in disaster risks around us. Um, we're seeing these communities affected by, you know, these heavy, uh, massive typhoons or floodings and, you know, uh, forest fires and drought. And, and so there's also a study that uh, around one in five people are going to experience a disaster in their lifetime. Um, and that may actually be you, you know, that may be me. Anyone could be going through that experience. And so, you know, learning the disaster risks in your surrounding area, where you live, uh, you know, where you work, you know, your commuting uh, uh, roads and identifying the safe place to evacuate um, and being alert on these uh, hazard uh, signs of hazards 
I think will save a lot of things, you know, will save your life, your loved ones and your assets and so on. And so, yeah, I mean, CWS will do its best in um, promoting more disaster risk reduction, climate change adaptation in this current era. But I think it's up to each individuals, it's, it's up to each one of us to make that decision, uh, to take that action. And um, so if I may also call for such action by everyone to keep ourselves safer and our children and generations safer, I think that would be wonderful. No, thank you. And I really appreciate it, actually. And I, I, I know that a lot our listeners as well, Rakashi, uh, because you know, there are so many issues uh, out there and, and people are often, often overwhelmed and then think, you know, what can I do? And, and I think your advice in terms of, you know, look in, in your own situation, how can you be better prepared? So that's one. Second, what you also mentioned, I think, in our conversation today is that, you know, we have often more in common than we, than we defer. And, and uh, that's also actually the, you know, basic premise of this podcast is to show people that, hey, you have a lot of, you know, um, perspectives out there, but there is there is always a possibility where you can start a dialogue, where you can learn from each other and, and you know, and we can say, hey, you know, we might not agree on everything, but there are pieces where we can work together, uh, make this world a, a little bit better. So I, I really appreciate it. And, and then the third, what you said is, you know, um, yeah, that, that there, are, there is a lot to be hopeful uh, about. So, so at, at least that's what I heard you, you say. I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, you know, continue what you do. It's, it's great uh, stuff. Um, yeah, th thank you so much. Thank you for having me today, Maurice. Great. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram walk is around the corner because i will be walking again from october 11 until 17 and you can support me you know you can join and the great thing is that when you support me uh, that thanks to the immense generosity of restart bank we have received a magic grant of $2,500. And this means that every dollar you donate to the 100 mile hunger walk will be doubled until we reach that goal. So please do it. But there are nine other ways that you can support uh, you know, this year's 100 mile as well. See you soon.